Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right, now to the studio. Hey, folks, welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And we want to thank you for joining us for part two of our podcast on Jackson v. Deno hearings and the admissibility of defendant's statements. That's right. You never knew that there was so much to learn, and you were probably just almost turning pages trying to get to this next podcast, waiting for it to drop on all of the different podcasts platforms, or maybe it's just the next one that pops up as you're doing whatever you're doing. But anyway, let's go back to what we were talking about earlier, Tane, regarding Jackson v. Deno. You ready? Sure. So, Tane, we've been watching a lot of TV during the pandemic, and all of the police shows, or at least most of the police shows, talk about, well, the policeman can lie to you. Is that true? Um, In some ways, yes, it is, Wade. I mean, they can... They can say some things that aren't necessarily so and not invalidate a statement by the defendant, but there are also some fine lines, and let's talk a little bit about those. Misrepresentations of the applicable law are different than misrepresentations of fact. The fact that you tell a defendant that he or she wouldn't cannot be charged, that's not a crime, those sorts of things, that's a different thing than saying, oh, the the defendant, or excuse me, the victim hasn't died yet or has died when in fact they haven't. Those are those are different. So when you look at things like the age of the defendant, the 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 circumstances of the case, the the totality of those circumstances, misrep- misrepresentations of law may impact whether or not the statement is admissible. You agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if the if the officers were to say something to the defendant like, hey, look, you know, uh, murder now has a one week statute of limitations. So we wish we could charge you on this. But even if you confessed right now, uh, we wouldn't be able to charge you on it. That that might be found to be a misstatement of the law, which would potentially affect the voluntariness of the statement. Whereas if you said, as you said a minute ago, uh, you know, this guy died and this is going to be a murder rap now. Um, and he's, and he's really not dead, that might not affect and probably wouldn't affect uh, the admissibility of the statement. So, Wade, even in looking at uh, exaggerations uh, or misstatements or false representations of fact that might be made during an interrogation, uh, what's the standard that we're looking at uh, as you, that you as the judge would, would follow? Well, again, you're going to look at the totality of the circumstances and that you can note that the employment of deceit may result in the inadmissibility of a statement where the particular deception used constituted in some way the slightest hope of benefit or the remotest fear of injury. If that has induced the party to confess, that confession very well may be rendered involuntary, but that is going to be, I, I guess, the sixth or seventh time we're going to reiterate totality of the circumstances. So totality of the circumstances. That's what you have to keep in mind. That's right. That's your mantra on all of these Jackson v. Deno and even Miranda type uh, examinations of a statement. 
totality of the circumstances. Now, folks, when you see things like excessively long detention, physical deprivation, whether they don't get food or water or sleep or cold or go to the restroom. (laughs) Yeah. Some sort of brutality, even if it's not actual striking those some of those things may be considered by you as a part of that totality of the circumstances examination in deciding whether or not that statement was voluntary. Yeah, I mean, even if the interrogators are armed or not at the time of the interrogation, and I, I see that uh, on a regular basis where the person who's asking the questions has a gun, that doesn't in and of itself make it a coerced statement. Now, if the officer continues to pat his hand on the gun or unlocks the safety on the gun and you know uh, appears to be getting it ready, that's part of the totality of the circumstances that we're talking about. So back in the day when they would... Uh question somebody while patting their hand with their nightstick. That's probably going to be a problem. Whereas somebody who is merely wearing the uniform that they normally wear, that may not be coercive. It really depends again for about this, I guess now this is the 12th time totality of the circumstances. Yeah. And you know, there are some cases out there that talk about the length of the interrogation and also, for example, the length of time after uh, the person was, you know, brought to the station before they were interrogated and those sorts of things, again, are all things that you have to look at and really use your best judgment. Because if the defendant's been at the station for eight hours before he's interrogated, but he was placed in a room where he could sleep and in fact did go to sleep and was observed sleeping during that period of time, that's a whole lot different than if he was in a bright room, you know, with, with that was freezing cold and he could, there was no place for him to sit down or lie down. And he was there for eight hours before they ever brought him in to, to be interrogated. So those are all things, again, totality of the circumstance. So let's talk about some unique factual cir- circumstances where statements have been determined to be admissible or inadmissible. Let's start with juveniles. Now I will, I'm going to freely admit Tane doesn't admit these things as freely as I do, but I'm going to freely admit that I had a fairly recent reversal on appeal on one of these cases. Um, I'll talk about it a little bit because it's the case is called Tanksley versus the state, but they're all, all, when you get involved where a juvenile is involved in a case, whenever you get to a custodial statement, the seminal case is called Riley versus the state. It's been around a while and it, it remains valid law. Tang, tell the folks a little bit about the nine Riley factors that are, are, are referred to whenever a juvenile is the person who is being questioned in custody. Sure. And I'm going to give you a little tip and, and Wade will back me up on this. If you have a juvenile statement, mention every one of these nine Riley factors, whether they apply or not, you say they do or don't apply because um, if not, you may get reversed or at least sent back for uh, something, a remand so that you look at them again. But yeah, there are nine factors that are set out in Riley. Before you read them, remember- I'm going to recite them off the top of my head, Wade. I'm not going to read them. Yeah. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Whenever you are looking at the admissibility of the statement of a juvenile- Understand that those nine factors, not one of them is more important than the other. And and the existence or absence of one doesn't necessarily mean the statement's not admissible or vice versa. You know what I mean? That's exactly right. So give the people the nine. The nine. All right. The nine important factors. 
I'm going to do it backwards like uh, like Letterman used to do. Number nine, whether the accused has repudiated an extrajudicial statement at a later date. Number eight, whether velnon, uh, that's one of my favorite Latin phrases, uh, the accused refused to voluntarily give statements on prior occasions. Number seven, the length of the interrogation. Number six, methods used in interrogation. Number five, whether the accused was interrogated before or after formal charges had been filed. Number four, the nature of his rights to consult with relatives, friends, or an attorney. Number three, knowledge of the accused as to both the substance of the charge. Number two, education of the accused. And number one, age of the accused. Now, those are, those are your nine factors. And, you know, some of those uh, are going to appear more frequently than others. But quite frankly, if, if a statement is being presented of a juvenile and they don't cover all nine of those factors, I think it's incumbent on you to ask things. Like, for example, if they don't tell you what their knowledge of the accused's education was, it's a good thing for you to ask. You know, we had the big session that we talked about last time about judicial comment, but remember that's in front of a jury. When when you're in this role, you are much more of a finder of fact and getting some preliminary information in. So it's not uncommon for me to ask a question in the Jackson v. Deno hearing. You? Uh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I kind of I kind of get into those questions. I mean, to those hearings and start asking questions because again, I've got to make some important findings of fact and I need to be able to check off my list of nine and, and other things. And, and don't forget, these are nine. They're not the only nine. I mean, they're not exhaustive. They're, there may be other factors you're looking at too. For example, these next two, yeah. Whether the juvenile had a parent or guardian present, that's going to be important, but not necessarily determinative. Similarly, whether the juvenile signs a juvenile Miranda form as opposed to an adult Miranda form, that's relevant, not necessarily determinative. And, and I think what's important about that, those is they tend to be more positive than negative, if that makes sense. In other words, if he does, says something in a statement and his mother is sitting right next to him, it's a good thing that the mother was there. Or for example, if he has a, a juvenile Miranda form that would be easier for him to understand, you know, that's a positive thing. But if he doesn't sign a juvenile one, that's not the end all be all. That doesn't say the statement's inadmissible to you. That's exactly right. So moving away from juveniles now, let's talk about the impact of mental disability or illiteracy. The, the fact that a defendant may have a low IQ or another mental disability or even as illiterate is not dispositive of whether the defendant can make a knowing and voluntary statement or waiver of his Miranda rights. It's not dispositive. It is a factor. And Tane, what's that phrase again that we always have to consider whenever we're looking at a Jackson Deno hearing? Totality, totality, totality of the circumstances, stances, stances. If that's a factor, it's not the factor. It is a factor. The fact that the defendant may have confessed to a crime, the fact that that person may have some mental disability, that's not a reason to automatically exclude that statement. But you've got to look at what that mental disability is, Tane, right? 
That's right. And that's why it's really important in these circumstances. For example, you know, the the defense and the and the state might agree that the first 10 minutes of the statement is all you need to look at to make a determination. You may though say, look, I've got to be, I've got to decide whether he had the mental acuity to be able to make a statement, a reasonable statement. You may want to watch more of the statement than the first 10 minutes just to say, I just need to see how he reacted when these people asked him questions and how complex they were and whether he seemed to understand them or something along, along those lines. Now I have had a number of occasions where a defendant has had some difficulty reading. And in fact, when, when you look at those, those, those factors, if the officer reads the defendant, his or her rights in a way that could be understood that's going to be a major factor versus if the if the officer merely flipped the form around and said sign here sign here initial there that that doesn't help me any if the if the rights were read to the defendant that that matters to me yeah absolutely and and if if when the defendant asked a question if they did if it was answered in a way that the average person could understand or in a way that it made sense that makes a difference to me too. You know, when we talk about um, people who are not native English speakers or people who are hard of hearing, keep in mind the issue is we don't have a bunch of statutes on people who are not native English speakers or people who who are hard of hearing what or, or, or have have an inability to hear. We're looking at voluntariness of statements, and, right. and we, that, those people can absolutely make a voluntary confession. But you've got to make sure that they understood where it was happening. And if they did not have someone who spoke that language and the person signed a form they absolutely couldn't read, if they're blind, for example, I mean, there's probably not a lot of, of Miranda waivers written in Braille. But at the same time, that goes back to that voluntariness determination as a, as a fundamental matter. That's right. Now, I know out there in our in our audience, there's somebody raising their hand right now going, ooh, 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 and we can't see them. So I'm going to guess that they're there, and I'm going to answer this question. When we talk about mental disability, we're not talking about insanity. In other words, we're not talking about someone who is incapable of understanding because they are suffering from such a mental problem or condition that they, in fact, don't know where they are, who they are, or what's going on at the moment, because the standard there is whether the person, or whether the person's statement is the product of a rational intellectual free will. In other words, were they able to make a knowing and voluntary statement? And if there's true insanity, there's something that would constitute an inability, then it's not freely, knowingly, and voluntarily made. And that goes back to our basic standard. And, you know, this would also apply when somebody says they were high, when somebody says they were drunk. I mean, you know, we hear that all the time in, at the time they made their statement. And in, in all candor, all of that is going back to totality of the circumstances. Did the person making a knowing involuntary waiver of, of known rights? But, Wade, what if they're drunk and they're intoxicated above the standard for driving, above a, a 0.4. Doesn't that mean they're 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 legally incapable of making a voluntary statement? Because I hear that argument a lot. No. Now, the the short answer is no. the The thing that drives me insane. Everybody has their pet peeves. Here's one of my 400. 
the when people say they were three times the legal limit, legal limit to do what? You don't have a legal limit of intoxication unless you were driving. Right. So, so no, the involuntary intoxication and the level of intoxication goes to that overall analysis, but is not in and of itself determinative. Now, Tane, people have, have called this all sorts of things, but it's, it was, I don't know if this is something that was taught in police officer school for a while, not too long ago, but a lot of people call it the, the pre-interview, the, we're going to just ask some questions and then we're going to Miranda somebody if they step into a hole because they're free to leave at first. And and some people call it like the booking exception, like, well, I don't have to Mirandize you to find out how tall you are and what your mama's phone number and that kind of stuff. So the booking exception to the to Miranda, and that's something that the Georgia courts have have identified, but they've confined that pretty tightly. You agree? That is very true. Um, the phrase that you most often see will th- will be things like questions normally attendant to arrest and custody. So those are going to be things like your name, your age, how far did you go in school? What's your address? What's your phone number? Who do you live with? You know, those sort of really basic questions. I have a serious question to ask you. I don't think we've ever discussed this offline, online, or any other kind of line. Um, In one of our local sheriff's departments, it is a part of their pre-interview form get your name, your height, your weight. They ask gang activity, uh, gang affiliation and whether or not you are on probation or parole as a part, you know, always on the video. Do your office, do, do your agencies do that? No, I, I, in fact, I don't think I've ever seen that in an interview. Well, e- either one of requ- those questions. So what it requires nine times out of 10 is a redaction of the statement from the beginning. So the jury's already looking at this herky-jerky thing because somebody who's not a professional editor like our boy Stephen Turner. Right, at Turner that, Up that, Media. That, that people, are, that somebody else, you know, a, a lawyer, God forbid, has, has tried to do an editing of the video. And the jury's automatically suspect, like, what's going on here? Why, how much did we miss? Because they may think that they missed the confession to uh, the assassination of President Kennedy, right? whereas they really missed two questions. Well, and those, again, would go back to your determination as to whether or not those are questions normally attendant to arrest and custody. And for them, they're trying to argue, oh, those are the questions we always ask. Okay, well, still, that's not basic general information that's, uh, you know, non-inculpatory or, you know, uh, that It raises character issues uh, sort of unnecessarily in this setting. Correct. Anyway. um, Hey, let's talk about something else that happens a lot. What about spontaneous utterances? And these happen a lot of times long before the person is, uh, is down at the police station, you know, being asked formal questions by detectives or whomever is, uh, is conducting that. But let's talk about that. You mean like during the ride downtown, he says, Hey man, I didn't even have a gun. Hey man, he shot at me first. Yeah, I wasn't the one who who went up to them and robbed them. I was in the car. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I'm talking about. So spontaneous utterances, they're admissible against a defendant 
But the question that really only makes these things even hard, because there's no in, interrogation being conducted, the only thing that makes a spontaneous utterance more difficult is, is it a spontaneous utterance versus an incriminating statement? In other words, the prosecution can't use statements, whether they are exculpatory or inculpatory, stemming from custodial interrogation of the defendant unless it demonstrates the use of procedural safeguards effective to secure privilege against self-incrimination. Read into that Miranda warnings. Under our law, voluntary statements made by unwarned suspects in a custodial interrogation are presumed to be compulsory and are inadmissible at trial. By comparison, a spontaneous and unsolicited statement not made in response to any kind of questioning is not subject to the strictures of Miranda and is admissible despite the fact that the warnings may not have been given. You know, it's it's one of those things that that you've got to look at the circumstances. Did the questioning sort of beg this response or was it truly a spontaneous utterance made not in a custodial to interrogation setting? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, if we could just get uh, officers while they're driving a defendant from his house to the statement to real, I mean, to the, to the, uh, uh, police station to make a statement, if we could just get them to realize that they can't start their interrogation there, unless they're going to go ahead and Mirandize the defendant, um, a lot of these borderline questions that that we have to answer uh, would not be a problem or wouldn't be more difficult. But, you know, when you start asking even general questions like, well, how long have you lived out here on, you know, this in this area of town or anything that's designed to get the defendant talking? I'm not saying those are always problematic, but, you know, if you're hoping to get some sort of quote unquote spontaneous utterance from the defendant, you got to be walking a pretty thin line and be careful. Absolutely. So, for example, just one of the cases that are that, that you can find on where is it they can find that tank? Good, goodjudgepod.com. That one of the cases is one called Gardner, where the officers they always ask the suspect, Do you have any idea why we're here? Just, I guess, just to, you know, it's just a game. No, they're trying to get them to maybe the defendant will say something incriminatory there. But they'll say, not only did they ask him if you knew why you were here, one of the other officers said, we're also here about those women you have been raping and robbing. Now, um, that wasn't really a question posed to the suspect. But when he responds, well, that may be, but I know that you don't have any physical evidence against me. The Court of Appeals said, you know, all that det- although the detective did not directly ask Gardner a question, those remarks were not normally attendant to arrest in custody or, or, or connection to a booking. And he should have known that, that that would have probably garnered a response, which is probably why he made the statement. And therefore, that would be something that would require Miranda, et cetera. Again, this is totality of the circumstances. It depends on what all was going on. But more likely than not, those those sort of inculpatory statements are probably going to be found to be uh, inadmissible if they didn't get some Miranda warnings. Yeah, that's right. Well, wait, let, let's talk about something really important because this happens a lot right in the midst of a statement. Let's talk about invocation of right yeah. to counsel. How does that happen, when it happens, and uh, and how it happens? So I want a lawyer 
We got that, right? Yeah, that one's easy. I don't want to answer any more until I get my lawyer. We get that, right? Sure. I'm not sure if I should answer without a lawyer. Or I can't afford an attorney, so... Those are the kind of things that you have to understand. The test is whether the invocation of the right to counsel or request for counsel was unambiguous, correct? That is correct. And and the courts have been a little strict about that. I mean, uh, although the one I just said a moment ago, which uh, is I can't afford, I can't afford an attorney. So the court determined that that wasn't really an invocation of counsel. He didn't say I want an attorney and I can't afford one, but I don't want to talk to you unless I have one. Uh, the court said, eh, that's kind of ambiguous. He's not really saying he doesn't want to talk without an attorney. He's just saying he can't afford one. I promise you this is true. This next topic that we're going to talk about is what we, we frequently call reinitiation, where a defendant wants an attorney or indicates that he wants to have an attorney and then somehow later indicates that he wants to have a conversation. This literally was said to me within the last week. A very good officer said to me that once a defendant invokes, they can't ask them any questions for 72 hours. <laughs> That's what he that's what he thought, huh? That's what he thought he understood the law to be. Now folks, that's not the law. No. If a person invokes his right to remain silent, he has always invoked his or his or her right to remain silent unless and until that defendant reinitiates some sort of contact with law enforcement. You agree? I do agree wholeheartedly. And I'll tell you the circumstance where that reinitiation frequently happens. The defendant is answering questions, things get testy, things get tense, and the defendant says, fine, I want to talk to my lawyer. And the detectives say, or whoever it is, say, fine, then this interview is over. You're going back to the jail cell. And they slam the book shut or flip their papers over or whatever. And the defendant says, well, now, hold on a second. <laughs> I, I didn't mean I didn't want to say anything else. And then he starts talking again. Okay, that's potentially a, a true reinitiation. Also, what I've seen in a case is they, they say, okay, fine, and they stop the interview. They take the defendant down, down the hall to the holding cell and he says, hey, uh, can you, excuse me, uh, deputy, can you go get that detective again? I got some things I do want to tell him, and they call him back. What I have also seen happen, though, is the defendant says, I want to talk to my lawyer. And they say, well, fine, then here are the things that are going to happen to you, you know, from here on out. And, they, and the detectives start quote unquote, making statements. We weren't asking him questions. We weren't interrogating and we were just telling him what was going to happen. What they're trying to do is get conversation reinitiated, trying to get an utterance out of the defendant or something like that, which is really an, the, the same as continuing to interrogate the defendant. So you've got to make the call on those. You know, I've seen it where two officers will be involved, whether they'll be in patrol car or whatever, and they will carry on this hypothetical conversation. You know, if I was in a situation where I had stabbed someone 38 times, I think I'd want to explain how that happened. What about you, Officer Tain? Well, I would think it would go better for me if I did, Officer Wade. And all of a sudden the defendant goes, hold up, hold up. I didn't stab her 38 times. It was 14. 
And so, you know, next thing you know, you've, you've got the, the re it doesn't have to necessarily be in direct questioning y'all. It can yeah. be conduct, which sort of invites or begs a defendant to jump back in the conversation. Yeah. One of the cases says anything that's the functional equivalent of an interrogation. And that's, that's a good way of looking at it. Um, real quickly, now that we're on this topic, I know Bruton is an entirely different podcast and we can have that episode on a different day. Just understand that Bruton, just because your co-defendant made a statement, that doesn't give you standing, new words, standing, to object to whatever that defendant said or that defendant didn't have Miranda warnings, etc. Just because the co-defendant made a statement that is now admissible against you doesn't give you the right to raise his constitutional privileges, right? That's right. You can't raise those on behalf of another person. And and just like a, a lawyer standing out in the hallway, you know, can't start screaming, you know, my client has a right to remain silent and, you know, and, and stop the interrogation from happening. So, folks, we have gone way too long in our discussion of Jackson v. Deno. And when you keep in mind, we've already gone through a trial from beginning to end in our series, multi-part series that we did earlier in the year. Understand that we know we've talked about this a lot, but some of you are asking questions about Jackson v. Deno and how we should rule on the admissibility of statements. So we wanted to make sure we got that to you just as quickly as we possibly could. Folks, we really appreciate your listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Pageant. And I'm Tane Kell, and uh, we hope to get to talk to you again real soon. Thanks for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This podcast was originally the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, who is the executive director of ICJE. Special thanks to the University of Georgia College of Law and specifically to Mr. Jim Henneberger. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, for editing out as much of our stupidity as he can. But he can't get it all. We are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead NJO, that's New Judge Orientation, for new Superior Court Judges and for their support of this project. The opinions expressed on this podcast are our own and do not reflect the opinions of CSCJ, ICJE, the UGA College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. These are barely the opinions of Wade Padgett and Tang Kell, so we definitely aren't speaking for anyone else. You can contact us on our website, goodjudgepod.com. Or send us an email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. So, Tane, I guess we better bang the gavel on this episode. Anything else you feel like we need to say? 10-4, good buddy. Catch you on the flip-flop. <laughs>